If you'd be opening your Bibles to the 26th chapter of the book of Isaiah. We'll start there today. For a brief review from last week, because chapter 26 continues the thought uh, flowing from chapter 25. And we saw in chapter 25 where um, the Lord of hosts will make a feast, verse 6. He will destroy the mountain, take the veil away that covers the face of all the nations, verse 7, swallow up death forever. So we have in chapter 25 the, the vision of the new Jerusalem is what it's called in, uh, in Revelation. It's, uh, he continues that thought in the 26th chapter down through uh, about the first five verses. Uh, and then he talks about those who would be uh, inside the city and those who would be without. So uh, in that day, the song, verse 1, will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. So in this city, the new Jerusalem, there are no need for walls. There are no need for bulwarks. God's salvation uh, provides, God's salvation provides the walls and bulwarks. So open the gates so that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose name is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. And that's the holy name of God. Notice now in verse 5, the tenor of his, his, uh, his conversation changes. For he brings down those who dwell on high. Um, those who find no need for God's salvation. Uh, those who presume that the way that they're living is the right way, albeit in direct contrast to the way that uh, God wants them to live. Those who are uh, those who are the oppressors of others, and so all of these that dwell on high, this this pride of power, um, these ones who take advantage of the weak and the suffering, those who don't fear God, uh, in every age we see. These kind of these kind of people, and God will bring these low. He said He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it on the ground. He brings it down to the dust, and the people that will tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness, O most upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. You know, the justice of God is not dead. It sleeps, is what we're told in the Bible. And so with the lofty being laid low, the proud city brought to the ground, they are utterly destroyed. And those who come in are the ones who are righteous the most, or or the upright. And so the desire of our soul is for your name. Now look at verse 9. For my soul, or with my soul, I have desired you in the night. There are times... In my life, and I probably, I'm pretty sure there are times in your life when you lay awake at night and you can't sleep. And I know that oftentimes in those hours of the early morning, especially when I wake up, instead of worrying about what's coming today or what's going to be going on, I'll go into, if you will call it this, a prayerful mode. And I'll just talk to God. And I think this is the time that he's talking about, you know, with my soul I've desired you in the night. You know, come to me and talk to me. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. Um, you know, there's conversation that people have that early morning uh, when you get up, 
uh, is a good time for you to have that meditation time, to have that prayer time. And, you know, my wife and I get up about 4.15 every morning because she has to be at the hospital to round with the doctors. And so, you know, there's a, there's time. And I sometimes lay there while she's in the shower, and I'll just lay there in a, a prayerful mode and just talking, you know, just talking with God. These are the times in the early morning when it's quiet. The hustle and bustle of the day has not quite grabbed me yet. And my mind is so distracted that I can't put two thoughts together. And it's these times in that quiet of the early morning. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Now watch verse 10. There's guilt, in, 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 there's guilt insensibility in, in verse 10 where he talks about the grace that is going to be shown to the wicked. Let grace be shown to the wicked. But even if grace is shown to the wicked, they don't care. The wicked don't care. It says, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In a land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly. So despite all of the people around him, he's untouched. This person is untouched by the visitation of God's goodness. He's uninfluenced by human example. All the people around him are righteous. All the people around him are upright. Yet he, they choose to just do wicked. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty, will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Now, what are we talking about? What are we talking about with the majesty of the Lord? What is the majesty? Every day we behold the majesty of the Lord, do we not? What do we see? What do we see? Where do you see the majesty of the Lord? On a daily basis, where do you see the majesty of the Lord? Step outside the door. There's the majesty of the Lord. These people refuse to see it. They just turn a blind eye to it. They refuse to see the majesty of the Lord. And so these people who are, who are untouched by, by the visitation of God's goodness, they're uninfluenced by human example, um, he will not behold the majesty of the Lord. In the material world, it's what we talked about, in the material world, the sky, the sea, the mountains, the storms, the earthquakes, the lightning. You know, this time of year when it gets really hot, we have that heat lightning. And that was going on the other night. And, you know, you don't ever hear any thunder. It's kind of creepy. But that's the majesty of God. Job 37.22 says, you know, God is manifest in his terrible majesty, the, the physical world. Uh, and they're unaffected by divine providence. They're unaffected by it. God's wrath against those that are impure or intemperate, those who are violent, all of the evils of man, they're, they're unswayed by this. They're unswayed by the goodness in the world. And if they're unswayed by that, they're not going to be swayed by the gospel. And that's the third thing. That's the majesty of the Lord. The majesty of the Lord resides in the gospel. The gospel is where the light of the glory of God is shown in the face of Christ. Look at the severity. Look at the, look at the sorrow that Jesus bore for us. The severity of his sorrow the awful, awful way that he died. But he was on a heavenly mission. And that had to be that had to be so. It is not the good, it is not the upright that God is angry with, it's the wicked. God is angry with the wicked, and he will bring them down. You know, yes, the Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, verse eleven. They will not see it. 
And I think of so many people who look around them and they see the majesty of God. They hear the simple message of the gospel. And they just, it just does not affect them. If it affects them in any way, it makes them angry. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's, there's judgment to come. And that hand will be lifted. And even when it's lifted, they're not going to see it. They've had the warnings. The Bible is replete with warning. God's never given a problem without a solution. You know, that's what I tell my people that, that work for me. When they come to me, if you've got a problem, I don't mind you bringing your problem to me, but you better bring some solutions with you. Don't just bring me a problem and lay that at my feet. You bring me a problem, you bring me some solutions. How can we fix this? What's the best way to do it? And so God has a solution to their lives. He has a solution to all these things, but they won't see. But they will see, and they will be ashamed for their envy of the people. Verse 11, yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us. You have also, you have also done all our works in us. O oh Lord, our God, masters besides you have, have made dominion over us, but you and you only, we make mention, we make mention of your name. And so as we get down there in that area of verse 12, we start talking about, you know, he's laying out an argument from the past. You've established your peace. The masters who are beside us, the great things that God has done. What has God done for us? Well, Isaiah says the great things that God has done, one of the great things is he's heard our cry. Every time we've messed up and we've gone away into captivity, all those many, 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 many times, all the people had to do was return to God, cry out to God, and God answered every time. But that's why he's God, because I get pretty tired of it after a while. If you all were constantly crying out to me for deliverance, and I told you what was the right way, and you just went off and did what you wanted, and then come back and say, oh, take us back. No, I, you know, fooled you once, shame on you. Fooled you twice, shame on me. But that's not how God works. God is constant. He's heard their cry of distress, verses 16 and 17. The psalmist, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. What is that like for a Christian in prayer to cry out to God for deliverance, to cry out to God for help? And God will supply, God supplies that help. He, again, they cry out to him, what does he grant? Conditional pardon or full pardon? Full pardon, full deliverance. All that he wants is for us to come back to him and be obedient to him. But our pride stands in our way. Our inability to obey the simplest commandments that he gives us. But he's granted full deliverance. Our Lord's, in verse uh, 16, 17, uh, talks about uh, the fact that uh, masters besides you have had dominion over us. And he's delivered us from those masters. He's delivered them from the Assyrians. He delivers them from the Babylonians. He delivers them from the Medes and the Persians. But finally, in that argument, he's granted spiritual enlargement in verse 15. You've increased the nation. God grants material enlargement, improvement of someone's, a person's estate, the brightening of their life, the broadening of their fear. All of those who've come out of spiritual captivity can bask in the sunshine and the light of the Lord. As we love and serve Christ, we are enlarged on every hand. The horizon of our souls is removed far beyond its former bounds. You cannot outgive God. You cannot outthank God. You cannot outdo God in any way. Blessings pressed down, heaped up, overflowing. That's what's promised to us. 
But what's also promised is the need to be obedient to him, and that's where uh, most people have the problem. So he makes that argument for the past, and then in verse 20, He's increased, or down verse 15, he's increased the nation. He's ex- increased us. He's glorified. You've, exempt, you've expanded all the borders of the lands, just all those things that we've just talked about. Lord, in trouble, you, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. That's that prayer of deliverance that he's talking about. As a woman in pain, or as a woman with child is in pain and cries out when she delivers, we have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth the wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance of the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. And so in verse 20, uh, after he talks about the dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise again to hear another example, another, uh, another thought about the resurrection. And in verse 20 he says, Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. What is there about the quiet solitude of a closet? Because it says, you know, go into your closet, retire to your chamber. So here he's talking about the duty of a person to to retire, to enter into the chambers, shut the doors about thee. And so if we look at this, there are some things here that Isaiah is talking about. There is a time for reflection in your life. The day-to-day struggle, the day-to-day busyness of life demands that there is a part of that day that you take for some devout reflection. Examining your spiritual condition. Examining where you are with regard to the life that you're living for Christ. Now sometimes that's sometimes that may bring on a prayer of repentance, may ask for forgiveness, and that's fine. But that devout reflection, it compels us each day, it compels us each day to yield to God, to talk with him in that moment of, of divine uh, or, or devout reflection. Okay, okay. So this attitude of devout reflection, this attitude of taking time, setting aside time, to speak with God, to talk with God throughout the day, or this time of, of where you just enter into your closet or you just have quiet time. The attitude that that requires you to have is one of diligence. You have to be diligent to do that each day. It just can't be something haphazard. It has to become a habit. It has to be, you have to be diligent in your search for God. You have to be devoted to your search for God. You have to be disciplined in your search for God. And you have to walk. You you have to walk with Christ in such a way that this becomes important in your life. And I think that's what he's talking about when you enter into your closet. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover will no more cover her slain. There is a day of judgment that's coming for those people where the high, the presumptuous, the the, the oppressor, all those people will be cast down. And the humble, which is what he talks about in the next chapter, he's talking about the, uh, the treatment of the wicked and the treatment of the righteous and how those two uh, are very, there's a dichotomy between those two. So chapter 27, verse 1, very interesting verse here. In the day the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, 
the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. All right? What do you think? What are we talking about here? I'm sorry, talk into this ear because I'm... Okay, okay. Can you relate this to anything in Revelation? Is there any, is there any kind of a direct corollary to Revelation? Look at Revelation, uh, how about 19? So there's three mentioned. Three mentioned. There's the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and the reptile that is in the sea. So some scholars say that this is Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. Some scholars say it's Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians. While others say it's a reflection or a direct reflection of what's talked about in Revelation, where there are the three great enemies of God's kingdom. Who are the three great enemies of God's kingdom? Three great enemies of God's kingdom. No, no. Not in, this, in this case, these are, these, are, these are the three great enemies, the worldwide enemies of God's, the, the, possessors, of, the possessors of this world, the, 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 the spirits of the air they talk about. So first one's who? The, the, the one everybody knows, the devil. Okay, who's the second one? The beast. Revelation talks about the beast. So there's the devil, there's the beast. And what's the third one? false prophet. Okay, so there's the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. Those are the three mentioned in Revelation. So if you turn to Revelation 19 and 20, it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. See, you know, in our next class, once we finish Isaiah, I think I'm going to do Revelation. Because you can't understand Revelation if you don't understand this. The reason we don't understand Revelation is because we're not good Old Testament students. We don't understand the Old Testament. You can't understand Revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic literature. And so we'll talk about apocalyptic literature. This is apocalyptic. Okay, when God wipes away all tears in the 25th chapter, when we talked about that, that's apocalyptic. That's the end time. He's talking about something to come. And so here when he talks about this, he talks about the beast, the devil, and the false prophet. But here, the beast, the devil, and the false prophet are all those, maybe those countries that take others into captivity. They could be for, in that short term, those that God is going to destroy. He's going to use his severe sword. Now, if you use this on a, from a New Testament, what's the, sword of, what's the sword of the Spirit? What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. Is the sword of spirit. That's how we slay the devil. We slay the devil, the beast, and the false prophet with this book. Because the false prophet will come to you and the false prophet will say, what's in this book doesn't really matter. That's your truth. It's not my truth. That's the false prophet. So we slay the false prophet, the devil, and the beast with the word of God. We don't do it on our own. And so when he starts out with this, he will slay the reptile that's in the sea. His severe sword, great and strong. But then in verse 2, there's a total change. So from verse 1 to verse 2, there's a total change. For the wicked, for the evil, for the, in that day, he will punish them. In that day also, 
he will sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, I thought it was interesting, and just in passing, in the original Hebrew, the second verse, those are inverted. In the second verse, in the original Hebrew, it says, a vineyard of red wine in that day sing to her. This, but for whatever reason, the translator switched it around. So what are we talking about? Now we're back to talking about, first of all, we started out with the discussion of the wicked. That was verse 1, okay? So the wicked, the sharpness of his instrument, the sharpness of his instrument, a sore and great and strong sword. Look at Deuteronomy 32.41 for another example of his gleaming wet sword. Out of the mouth of the Son of God, if you remember in Revelation 19 and verse 15, comes a sharp sword. A sharp sword goes out of his mouth with which he slays the beast, the word of God. So the miseries, the calamities, all of the things that come as a result of sin, pain, sickness, separation, famine, death, war, all of these things, he'll slay them all. His judgment is not only with a sharp instrument, but his judgment is also thorough. It will completely destroy it. Not He won't just wound them and they'll crawl off. He'll destroy them. And so verse 2 changes completely. And we talk about in verse 2 how he's going to treat the righteous, how he's going to care for them, how he's going to moderate his correction to them, his, his parental purpose, the parental purpose of his chastisement. And he talks about that in the, in the, in the, in the way that he talks about it from the standpoint of, of a vineyard. Okay? So vineyards. We're back to this, we're back to talking about vineyards again now. What did we talk about before with vineyards? He said in some of the earlier chapters in Isaiah that he had built a vineyard. He'd laid everything out. He'd built it. He constructed it like he'd want. He built a wall around it. He protects it. And so, two things that come to mind, when he builds that vineyard, the original, the original vineyard was in the garden. He built that, put man there, and his goal was for man to stay there and to live and to, to prosper in, in living for God. Well, we chose not to do that. Adam chose, Adam and Eve chose not to do that. And so that vineyard was destroyed. So what's the next vineyard that God established? There are three in all. We talked about them already. The second one was the Hebrew nation. He built a vineyard. He built a people. A people for his own choosing. Built a wall around them. Took care of them. How'd they treat him? Badly. It is a metaphor. It is a metaphor for God's people. So what's the modern modern vineyard? The church. God has built... A modern vineyard that he calls it, that, that, that's the church. He waters it. He takes care of it. He provides for it. He's built a strong wall around it. Now, how do we handle God's vineyard? How do we take care of God's vineyard? We know what's happened to the vineyards prior to this. The vineyard must be tended. It says, I water it. What does he say in verse 3? I, the Lord, keep it. I watch over it. I water it when? Daily, weekly, monthly? Every moment. Do what? I guess we better stay in it. Well, you know, that'd be the wise thing to do. That'd be the wise thing to do. But there are, as we go down through this, there are going to be those who are are going to to try to take advantage of the vineyard. 
and we'll see what happens. This oriental eastern idea of a vineyard is one that you should study outside of class. It's quite interesting in how they, a garden to them is not, a garden for us is what? Tomatoes, okra, cucumbers, lots of bugs, weeding, all that stuff that you got to do to make a garden. A garden in the Orient is a place of reflection. It's a place where you go and sit and you contemplate God. It's a place of relaxation. I have not ha- I've never had a garden that's been a place of relaxation. Uh, every garden I have is, a, is total frustration. The, 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 the squirrels and the rabbits are getting more than we're getting. And that's fine. God's creatures need to eat too. But a, but a garden and a vineyard in the Eastern sensibilities completely different from what we think about. Okay? The Lord takes care of the vineyard, the church. Meets your needs at every point. Waters it every moment. There's not a time that God is not dealing with or thinking about his garden, his vineyard in this case. I keep it. I water it every moment. Watch this. Lest any hurt it, I keep it day and night. There is a continual, there's a continual watch that God puts over his garden, over his vineyard. That he spent. So he's talked about destroying the evil in one verse. Now he's talked in two verses about the vineyard that he's keeping, the vineyard that he's watching. Vineyards are usually at a distance from the village. Vineyards are not usually within the village, and they require constant watch and guard, especially during the time of harvest. When the when the when the vines on the vineyard are full of grapes, or the, the trees are full of fruit, you got to really watch them then. And you can make that you can make that comparison to the church. If a church is growing, if a church is going, if a church is going out into the community, if a church is working to expand Bowling Green, Warren County, there's going to be a harvest. But there need to be some things for the harvest. There need to be workers, you know, or the garden is going to get overgrown. And you can use you can use all of these analogies for a garden and reflect all of this back on onto the church. There are. Things that are going to creep into the garden if the garden is not watched continually. Fury is not in me. What happens when the garden becomes something that God does not want? He says, fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? Who's going to bring this on my vineyard? Who's going to bring it? I would go through them. I would burn them together. And in verse 5... Verse 5, or let him take hold of my strength. How do we, how do we take hold of God's strength? How do we take hold of God's strength? How do we take advantage of God's strength? Because we can. He tells us that we can. He tells us we can take hold of his strength. Okay, through our advocate, Jesus Christ, our intercessor. That allows us to... Uh, that allows us to come to him, one who, was, one who was tempted in all manner, just like we are, yet without, yet without sin. That's our access. So, so that's our access. We have that advocate. So what does God give to us? If any lack what, let him pray. Wisdom. If any lack wisdom. 
So how do we grab hold of the strength of God? We grab hold of God's wisdom. We grab hold of the Bible, which is God's word. We grab hold of that strength that is God's wisdom. The effectual, fervent prayer of taking hold of God's strength of wisdom uh, and, and, and taking hold of his wisdom. Yeah, yeah. You sow and you plow and you cultivate and things are going to happen. They happen in your garden. They're going to happen in your life. They're going to happen in the life of a church. Things are going to creep in. But if the Christian is a, is a, is a, is a, a tender-hearted gardener with God's help watching it every moment, guarding, these things don't, things don't happen as often. The other thing, taking hold of God, I think taking hold of God's strength is taking hold of God's grace. Now, there's a cheap form of grace that denominationalism teaches. But when you get your arms around God's grace, when you understand what God's grace really is, and a lot of younger folks today, in talking to to younger people, I I, I think I don't don't know that, that younger people have a real good concept of what God's grace is. You know, they have a, they have a kind of an idea, and they kind of put it in terms that well, that might that might explain it, but it's really so much more than that. His magnanimity. You know, right? Right. Right. And you know, when you ask for forgiveness, that's just you know, that's a really good point. You know, when you ask for forgiveness, you're not you're not putting yourself into any kind some kind of eternal exile. You know, well, I just can't even look at you, God. I'm such a sinner. No, that's not what God wants. He doesn't want you in eternal exile. He has loving kindness toward even the most obstinate. Think of the person that you know in your life or that you've met in your life who is the most anti-God person that you've ever met. If that person would repent and come to Christ, God is, God is willing to forgive that, that most hateful, that most obstinate, that most rebellious person. He has, he has shown himself throughout the ages to receive back sons and daughters who are willing to say, I've sinned, I've made a mistake, I want to come back home. I just want to be obedient to you. He's, he's always been graceful. And if these people are penitent and truly, re, and truly return to him, he will forgive. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Sure. And I think that's I think that's a great example. And to to just dovetail onto that, you know, God when God forgives, God forgets. Like you said, who doesn't forget? We don't. Right. Yeah. And we yeah we don't. If it's someone else that sinned against us, how easy is that to forget? You know, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Well, that's not that's not that's not what God wants. That's not the way God works. You know, I, I wouldn't want to get to the day of judgment and God say, well, you know, I've forgiven you for all these sins, but <laughs> I haven't forgotten them. Whoa, wait a minute, hold on. That's not God. Because when he says he forgives, when he says he forgives, he forgets. We're our own worst enemies. Every day you look at that, you look at that reflection in the mirror, you're seeing your own worst enemy. You won't let yourself, you won't let yourself be forgiven. You know, God, again, you know, taking hold of God's strength, taking hold of his wisdom, taking hold of his grace, taking hold of his pity. God's strength lies in his pity. He's strong in pity. Like a father pitieth his children, so he pitieth us. His tenderness, 
Look at the tenderness. Look at the sympathy. Look, look at the tenderness of Christ. You know, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. His tenderness and compassion. You know, you can take hold of that strength in your darkest days. No matter what comes, you can grab hold of that strength, that compassion, that pity that will hold you up. He makes us strong. He upholds us by his word. God is able to do this. He's able to make us stand. Romans 14, 4. He's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before God's throne. Jude 1, verse 24. We can take hold of that strength, that strength that is God's. It's transforming. It's transformative. Through God, all things are possible. What's impossible with man? Possible with God. Nothing is impossible for him. So I think Isaiah here talks in in very simple terms about let me take hold, let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. And so we look down through the remainder of this chapter and then we talk about um, judgment. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob, verse 6. Israel will blossom, it will bud, it will, fill the fr- it will fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he struck Israel, has he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. And here the east wind again, probably a metaphor for Assyria coming from the east. Uh, the, the battles that will take place with uh, Shalomancer in the time of Hezekiah. Uh, Isaiah writes during both of those periods. And so there's a distinction to be made in this, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but there's a distinction be, to made, be made between judgment and chastisement. And so in measure, therefore by this, in verse, 20, verse 9, therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin when, it, when he makes all the t- stones of the altar like chalk stone that are beaten to dust. And if you've seen, you've seen altar stones that are large, hewn stone, and if you've ever seen a chalk, it's very soft. And that's what it's talking about. The altar stones will crush uh, the other, the chalk stone. Uh, wooden images and incense will not stand. In other words, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the way thereof is the way of destruction. And so these things will be taken away. The fortified city will be desolate, in verse 10. And the habitation will be forsaken and left for a wilderness. When its boughs are withered, verse 11, they will be broken off. The women will come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor, because they've turned their face away from God. They've turned to other men. We've seen this throughout the book of Isaiah. When there's an opportunity for someone to turn to God, but they take it, they take it and they turn to another man. They turn to someone else. They don't turn to God. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river Jordan. It says channel of the river, river Jordan, to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. And so what we see here is the return of God's absent ones. So shall it be in that day. A great trumpet will be blown, which is a trumpet of victory. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. And so 
There's a breath to the kingdom. You see here the breath of God's kingdom um, that he's going to set aside for them. Uh, you see uh, there's going to be a summons to return. The trumpet is going to blow. Um, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. So this, this trumpet of, uh, this trumpet of, uh, of summons to return. And there's a gathering that's going to take. Uh, there's going to be a gathering with, uh, there's going to be a general proclamation of gathering uh, for all these, for all these people to come back and to worship the Lord in the holy mount of, of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so chapter 28 opens then with a, a further judgment against Jerusalem and a further judgment against Ephraim. And so as we open, as we open that chapter, we see that Isaiah is going to talk about the evil of excess. And he's going to specifically talk about intemperance or drunkenness. Verse 1, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about this and get some of it. Everybody, I would guess, and maybe you don't, but everybody knows someone who maybe has an alcohol problem. Or you've seen someone in a setting where someone has a drug problem or an alcohol problem. Are they the steadiest people in the world? Typically, how would you describe someone who's had too much to drink? I'm sorry? Speaking to my good ear. This is, I've, got a, I've got a perforated eardrum. I have only one good ear right now. They can't walk straight. Okay. They stumble. They fall. Okay. How about their judgment? Huh? Impaired? Okay. Um, what about their wisdom? No? Okay. What would you think if a preacher got up into the pulpit and he had a little, maybe a little too much to drink? Is that going to impair his ability and impress you in any way? His influence is going to be forfeited, is it not? The influence that you had for this man of God, so you thought, and now he's in the pulpit and he's... He's incapacitated in some way. It's going to affect the way you think about him. So this proud city, the drunkards of Ephraim, the, the Ephraim is where the capital of Jerusalem is. These people have humiliated themselves. They're beauteous. Well, have you ever seen someone who's a lifetime of drug abuse or a lifetime of, of drunkenness, a lifetime of any of these excesses that people take? The flower fades these people look like, especially if you look at someone who's on uh, maybe Crime Stoppers or something, they show a mugshot of somebody that's uh, on meth or on crack or something like that. The beauty of the flower has faded, if you know what I mean. And so their beauty is spoiled. It's glory, glorious beauty becomes a fl- faded flower in verse 1. And again in verse 4 he talks about, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley. And so... The Lord has a mighty and strong one like the tempest of hail and destroying storm like the flood of the mighty who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. Um, God is not going to uh, be kind to these people. For the spirit of justice, verse, verse, uh, uh, verse 5, in the day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of people. There's a, there's a messianic reference right there. So, you know, the drunkenness of the people and the time that they are now losing their influence among other nations 
there's going to be a time in that day, verse 5, in that day, and that's a good, that's a good, when you say, when you see in that day in Isaiah, and when you see a remnant, you know you're talking about something messianic. So in that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. These are the ones, the, the remnant of the people are not the ones who are drunk. The remnant of the people are not the ones who are drunk. Those are the upright ones. Those are the ones he's contrasting with the drunkards of Ephraim. Okay? For a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Ah, verse 7. But they have also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. So here are the people that, we, that, that they put up on a pedestal, the priest and the prophet. They put it on a pedestal and they're drunk. They lose their influence. They lose their, they lose their ability uh, to speak for God. They are swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. Can't see. They stumble in judgment. Somebody said they stumble around. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. It's a lovely sight. Lovely word picture there. Whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom shall he make to understand the message? Those who are just weaned from milk? Those who are just drawn from the breast? In other words, who's going who's to get the message? The very, very young? It's no good to them. They've just been weaned. And so this section here on the evil of excess, and then in verse 5 talking about in that day when God reigns over his people, those who are the remnant, those who have been the loyally obedient, those who will return to the land in that day, God will be everything to his chosen people, and just like heaven. In that day, that remnant, that small remnant that will be saved, the church, the bride of Christ, in that day, just like in the day that they return from captivity, we're in, are we in captivity right now? If you think about this, think about this in comparison to the people of the Hebrew nation going into captivity. Are we in captivity right now? We're in captivity to sin, are we not? I mean, give me a show of hands. How many of you have not sinned today at all? It's a pretty small number. So we're in captivity to sin. We're continually held captive by sin. Now, we may fight it, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's what the promise is. The promise is you'll never be given anything more than you can resist. Sometimes I wonder, but I believe that's what I believe what God says. But sometimes things get sometimes things get rough. But there's a remnant that will come home to live eternally with God. Just like the Hebrew nation, there's going to be that remnant that's going to return. They're going to rebuild the wall. They're going to put everything back in order. Not that they're going to do it perfectly. But the only thing that we have within that day is that day will be a day of perfection. That day we will live perfectly forever after the Lord comes. So the Lord of hosts shall be a crown of glory. We glory in the God with his power and his might. We, 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 we bask in his glory. We bask in his precepts. We, we bask in that diadem of beauty. We, da- we bask in the righteousness for a spirit of judgment, that spirit of judgment that will come, verse 6, that spirit of judgment to him who sits in judgment, that spirit of judgment, who has learned Christ, who's learned what Christ wants and is obedient to him, uh, that man of integrity, 
unrighteousness, dishonesty, withholding of what's due, distastefulness, all these things have been put away. If the spirit, which is the spirit of Christ, is not in you, you are none of his. Romans 8 verse 12. And so here's the strength that God gives us, the strength to him that turned the battle at the gate. And so as we look down through here, we start to see these people who have fallen, who have fallen, the fallen away, the drunken, starting in verse 7, what their tables look like. They're not going to be able to teach any knowledge because of this, this excess. But in verse 10, he talks about, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to the people. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. There's going to be that group that's going to say we're going to add law to law. This is, this is, this is the failing of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's going to come. They're going to add precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. They're going to continue to, to bit and piece the law that, that God set down. They're going to completely dismantle it and add to it and take away stuff that's not, that's not correct. And that's what he's going to say. But the Lord, but the word of the Lord was to them, the word of the Lord is to these people, precept upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. That's the last uh, part of verse 13. So now, this infatuation with sin that these people have, these infa- this infatuation that they have with sin. So therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. These, he's talking to the rulers of Jerusalem. The drunkards of Ephraim. Because you've said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement, and the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made our, we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. So this, this strong pictorial example of what Isaiah is talking about, these guys are trying to do whatever they can to avert doom. So what are they going to do? Well, we know that we're we know that we're going to go to hell. So we're going to go make a deal. We're going to go make a deal with Sheol, and Sheol is the grave. Okay, Sheol is the, is the grave. Hades is the waiting place where everyone goes when they die. So no one in heaven, no one in hell right now. Everyone, if you look at Luke 16, everyone is in that place that 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 place of the the abode of the dead in Hades. They're either in Abraham's bosom or they're in torment. So it's a preview. Of what they're, of what's coming. So you can't go from one to the other. And he says, because you've made this agreement with death, and because you've made this, you, you, you've made lies your refuge. But then God says in verse 16, therefore thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Who's he talking about? That's messianic. That's Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the tried stone. He is, he is the precious cornerstone. He is the sure foundation. And if you believe in him, you will not act hastily. You will not make these agreements like these people have. So he's saying, don't make these agreements with Sheol. And don't make this covenant with death. Make your covenant with the sure cornerstone. Make it with Christ who's coming.
and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. All right, we're talking about measuring lines and plummets. All right, what are those used for? Okay, those are used for building. They're also used to, in this case, they're used to measure not a, not a building straightness because you use a plummet to determine if something is plumb. If it's straight for a wall, you got a wall that's all wonky over here. Somebody didn't use the plummet, the plumb right. They didn't plummet correctly. But it's also used to measure a man's life. The measuring line, the plumb. So is your life plumbed on this cornerstone? Is it plumbed on this precious stone? Is it plumbed in such a way that your life is upright? Your life is on the correct angle, if you will. And it's not, you know, all wonky and out of shape. So we'll pick up there next week, good Lord willing. We'll talk about, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, 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 measuring lines and plummets because there's a couple things to say about those.